Enter your code. Retinal scan required. Agent confirmed. Good morning, and welcome to Now Playing's Mission Impossible Retrospective Series, Mr. Hunt. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch and review each movie in the Mission Impossible series. Your team for this mission will be Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. This mission will be dangerous, filled with top-secret plot spoilers and mild language. As always, should any member of your team be caught or killed, the Secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. This recording will self-destruct in 30 seconds. Today we're discussing Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Starring Tom Cruise, Jeremy Renner, Simon Pegg, getting third billing this time. Paula Patton, directed by Brad Bird. This is the now playing co-host who's getting used to being disavowed, Arnie. Stuart in LA. And this is the host that always gets to seduce the rich guy, Jacob. Can one of those be a donor? <laughs> Maybe help <laughs> us out a bit there? How do you know? That's not why we've had donors this past donation drive. <laughs> ah, I see. They've given you a special donation. <laughs> yeah, it's the last couple hours, guys. If you're interested, we've got some other shows here. But we've also got some Mission Impossible, because next week we got Rogue Nation. We're at the penultimate episode, Ghost Protocol. I, of course, did not see this. They've gone with subtitles now. Rogue Nation and Ghost Protocol here. Yeah, no more numerals. Tom Cruise was a big push for that because he felt the last two were misnamed. <laughs> because they were the second and the third in the series? He thinks that they're standalone episodes, not sequels, and so you shouldn't have a number after it. He wanted to keep this like the Mission Impossible TV series. Every episode stands on its own, and every episode has a somewhat new team. That's how they did it in the 60s. That's how Cruise is doing it. So yeah, under Brad Bird's direction... Ghost Protocol. That's weird because this is the first one with continuity. <laughs> That's kind of true. This is also the first one I'm watching new for this retrospective series. I saw part three on video and overall I thought it was kind of forgettable. Time passed. Five years passed. Five and a half before Ghost Protocol came out. And by that point I'd seen War of the Worlds and I was just kind of anti-cruise you know when the first mission impossible came out i was one of his most ardent fans or at least a supporter of all his works but skipped valkyrie and oh oh yeah and valkyrie is a real candidate for worst cruise performance i mean him playing a german with an eye patch just talk about miscasting yeah what an embarrassment there yeah so the only thing he'd done between mission impossible three and four that i liked is Tropic Thunder, where I love him. But other than that, it was all misses for me. I even saw Night and Day. So I haven't watched this one. I never really felt like I was missing something in my life by not having seen it. But coming back, revisiting the first three, I'm like, yeah, you know, I really like this series. I am now anxious to see part four. Each one's been getting better. I really like Seymour Hoffman. Let's see what they got. And I have seen this one. I didn't see it in theaters. I got it on Netflix soon after it was available on disc because I had heard good things about it. I'm pretty sure it did really well. 
But more important to me, I heard that this is the one where they were letting Cruz bow out. Jeremy Renner was also in this film, and they were setting him up to take over the role. I know Renner would take over the Bourne series the next year. Yeah, all he has to do is be the next Bond, and he's got the trifecta. <laughs> he really does. Hawkeye, I mean, yeah, he'll do your franchise, whatever it is. I think he's going to be Bridget Jones. <laughs> So that was a plus to me, that maybe there was less crews, and I had heard good things about it, and I liked Renner in Hurt Locker. Yeah, let's not forget that there was a point where he wasn't the action guy, or or rather he did more dramatic action parts, and Oscar nominated. I think that's why he got this influx of commercial movies, is because he was a character actor that exploded, literally, in uh, 2009 with Hurt Locker, uh, the best picture winner of that year. And yeah, I think anything that can be done to take away from Cruz is a success in this franchise. I have always wanted to see this be an ensemble team effort. So the fact that we're going to have somebody rival Cruz finally at last for top billing, I don't know if it's that extreme once I've watched the movie, but I had me encouraged that, yes, with Cruz humbled now, he might be willing to play ball more with his other participants. And I'm not sure how humbled he was. I mean, we have talked up a lot that Tom Cruise is on the skids, but even Night and Day made its money back. He has huge mm. international appeal. We may have a bit of a Huffington Post-type backlash going on against him, but his movies, they still make money. Let me put it this way. A Tom Cruise hit isn't what it used to be. The fact that that movie barely broke even, the fact that people seem to hate it, it isn't a good sign for a future trajectory. You're watching the empire crumble. You're watching somebody, yes, going back to a known hit because the chances that he took haven't paid out. But he's still going back intending to walk away from this role. I don't know if he was intending. Nothing I have read or commentary or behind-the-scenes feature indicate this was his swan song as Ethan Hunt. We know now it certainly isn't, or if it's just the beginning of the end for Ethan Hunt in a way that he can still make money as a producer without having to do the action stunts he's done now for almost 20 years. But it is telling that he's like, I may not need Mission Impossible as much as I thought I did. The other curiosity for me going into this was Brad Bird, the director, coming from Pixar, coming from The Incredibles that I really liked. This was his first live action. And how is he going to move from animated stuff that I've liked to a live action film? That was another curiosity, another draw for me to check this out when it was available to rent. Yeah, he's going to do it with a whole lot of Apple computers. That's how he's going to do it. <laughs> the Apple logo is like, I'm surprised somebody doesn't have a tattoo of it. Yeah, the reason to hope here, but I think we know the drill. It's a Mission Impossible movie. So Arnie, let's give him the plot. Let's get into it. When IMF agent Trevor Hanway, played by Josh Holloway from Lost is killed, it's up to Tom Cruise's super spy Ethan Hunt and his team to find out what the killer wanted. All Ethan knows is the codename Cobalt, so Ethan assembles a team to break into the Kremlin and discover Cobalt's identity. Joining Ethan on this round is tech guy Benji Dunn, Simon Pegg returning to the role and being promoted to a field agent, and Agent Jane Carter, no not Marvel's one from ABC, but another Agent Carter played by Paula Patton. Sadly, no Ving Rhames. Uh, he gets a cameo at the end. But when they get into the Kremlin's vaults, Ethan finds the info on Cobalt has already been stolen, and it's a frame job. A massive explosion goes off in the Kremlin, and the Russians believe Ethan and the IMF are responsible, bringing Russia and America close to war. 
Thus, the IMF secretary personally comes to Russia to smuggle Ethan out, but tells Ethan that the ghost protocol has been enacted. Ethan will no longer be part of the IMF, but upon his return home, branded a traitor in the media in order to stabilize relations with Russians. Oh yeah, who could guess? Tom Cruise going rogue. Where did they come up with this? <laughs> He's going to get disavowed again? We never see this. <laughs> oh, Jesus. You know, this is the plot of the next movie if you've seen the trailer. I literally thought he was going to deal with a poltergeist or something. I was so disappointed. <laughs> But the secretary gives Hunt a chance to escape and capture the real terrorist. But before Ethan can even say thanks, gunmen shoot and kill the secretary, and Hunt escapes, along with William Brandt, the secretary's chief analyst and former IMF field agent, played by newcomer Jeremy Renner. Brandt joins the team, but has a terrible secret. A ghost in his past, you could say. He was tasked with protecting Ethan's wife, Julia, while she and Ethan were on vacation in Croatia. There, Julia was killed, and Brandt has been living with that guilt. But he joins the team, and the crew discover the identity of the true terrorist is Swedish nuclear strategist Kurt Hendricks, who believes the best way to push forward human survival instinct is by killing most of us with a nuclear <laughs> warhead. Wasn't this Kevin Bacon's plot in X-Men First Class? No, he w just thought the mutants would survive, and the radiation would create new mutants. This guy, I think he just wants a handful of people to survive. I mean, he thinks it's inevitable. Someday the asteroid will hit and kill us all. What are we waiting for? Let's do it with a nuke. So many questions about this guy. All right. So he had broken into the Kremlin not only to frame Ethan, but to steal a nuclear missile launch control device. But to launch the missile, he still requires the launch code. And it was that code that Hannaway had intercepted and was killed for. He was murdered by French assassin Sabine Moreau, who plans to sell the launch code to Hendrix. She must have no idea what he plans, because when that bomb goes off, her diamonds aren't going to be anybody's best friend. So Ethan and company go to Dubai and arrange a complicated ruse that I know we'll talk about to intercept and switch the launch code, but it fails. Sabine is killed, but Hendrix escapes with the actual launch codes. So they chase Hendrix to Mumbai, and Ethan kills the terrorist, but the nuclear missile is launched. In the nick of time, and with Benji's help, Ethan's able to stop the warhead from exploding. Cleared for the Kremlin bombing, Ethan is again an IMF agent and offers Brant a spot on his team. Brant confesses his part in Julia's death to Ethan, so Ethan reveals that Julia is alive and well. Her death was cover for a different operation. So with Brant a part of the team, Ethan and Julia are reunited as credits roll. So they tease us with that Julia thing. I mean, everybody's talking that Ethan went rogue when we start off. He's not being given a mission. There's no exploding tape at the beginning of this movie. One will show up a little later on, but at this point, he's in prison for reasons we don't know, and through the whispers of his future teammates, we find out Julia's dead, and I'm just thinking, told you so. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was just a way of giving him a new girl. I thought it was going to be Paula Patton. They have some chemistry here in the beginning when she's busting him out, I think, oh, they don't want a monogamous guy. We're past the scandals of 2006. We can afford to have Cruz have a new gal at his side. I was surprised how long it took for Cruz to get in this film. I mean, we open up with the death of another agent. I don't know who he is. And then we go to the Moscow prison, and we just see this prisoner by the back of his head. I guess I should have guessed it was Cruz. He's sitting there, what, bouncing like a ball off the wall or something while this break is going on by... Benji and Carter. See, strangely, I expected this guy to be 
a mission and it would be Tom Cruise making a grand entrance through the door. I didn't expect Tom Cruise to be the one getting rescued. Yeah, I think there are a lot of subtle... I mean, this is a formula franchise. They do a lot of things that they've done before. A part four is rarely surprising, but I do think they tweak it. And this is one of the tweaks is that exactly so. You would expect him to be busting out someone from a Russian prison, and indeed he does. There's a guy named Bogdan that becomes peripherally important to the plot. But no, he is in prison. They're saving him. That is certainly something new. We've never seen Tom Cruise need help before. The thing is, once I saw him in that prison, I just assumed he was there getting information. He did something to get put there. So he could find something out and they were just extracting him at this point, which is kind of what actually does happen. Yeah, he could get out at any time. He actually chastises them for trying to break him out. And Simon Pegg in a much larger role and and funnier role. I got to say that Pegg is used much better this time, but he's opening doors for him, trying to literally give him a path out of this jail to the extraction point. And Cruz is arguing with him. He's like, no, open the door into the riot area. I need to go get this guy. And that guy, I expected him to be really important. No. And it just (laughs) turns out that while Ethan was in prison, this guy fed him information, information we never hear about. It's a totally different mission. Nobody cares. But Ethan is loyal. So he's going to rescue this guy versus him possibly being killed after he's out. And they did that in the first one. Remember, that thing started with a a phony sting where a guy thought he was in a hotel room and room service drugged him. And He never came back, though. (laughs) He gave a name and we never found out. It wasn't the point. The point was to get us back into the vibe of the movie. And that, yes, Cruz looks cool here, jumping around parkour in this Russian prison. And are they going for more of a Bond feel here? Because light the fuse, I feel like we get a Bond opening. This fuse going around, we're going to see scenery that we'll see throughout the film. Well, they did that with the first one, and that's a Mission Impossible staple. The old series, the credits always showed you scenes from that episode. There was no standard opening credits, and they always had the lit fuse through it. This isn't so much a change as it is, it's similar to what they did in one, and it's a direct throwback, although admittedly with better effects, to what they did in the 60s. Yeah, I kind of didn't want to watch it because I yeah. thought it was going to spoil things. I was like, I, I actually don't want to know this stuff yet. But I guess they're being faithful to the show, and that must mean something to somebody. I never watched the show, so it didn't matter. Of course, most of the people who like the show hate the franchise for what they did to Jim Phelps. Sure. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, oh, what are they going to show us? I mean, in TV, it's important to not make people change the channel. But here, we're in a movie. Yeah, you've paid your money. You're going to sit in that seat no matter what. Maybe they're thinking about the HBO crowd. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure. And the new team. I mean, I don't really know Paula Patton very well. I looked her up. I've seen some stuff she's done. You know her ex-husband. He's uh, having some blurry line problems right now. Oh, she was married to... Yes, sir. The son of Growing Pains actor Alan Thicke. That's true, yes. He wrote a whole album about her after he was caught uh, having sex with other women. Paula was his last album. I can't believe you don't know all those wonderful hits about I'm Sorry I'm Such a Dog. (laughs) No, no. I've seen her in About Last Night, and I thought she was pretty good in that. But I think the comedic Pierre stole the show there. I had seen Deja Vu, but she meant really nothing to me coming into this. I was happy to see Simon Pegg have a bigger role, though. I had remembered him being a bigger part of the last one than he was. And so to see him here in the field, I like Simon Pegg and everything. I do feel if you're going to get rid of Luther, then Benji's a good replacement. 
You got to have that character that's, if they're not cracking jokes, at least they're bringing humor into it. Yeah, I want to say I never felt like Luther was all that important, so I didn't miss him here. But Benji wasn't important in the last movie either. Here, they use Peg's gifts for comedy, and he's really fun with all the spy stuff. When he has to help break into the Kremlin and having that digital wall and all of the stuff, putting on the costumes and all of that, he's sort of the geeking out. It's how we expect to see him, and he really relishes it here. He is an asset to the team. I think Paula Patton is an asset to the team. She has a backstory. We finally have a character who has a subplot independent of Tom Cruise. She was the partner, the the mentor to the guy that was taken out at the beginning. You say you didn't know him. I thought he was going to be a big part of this. This is uh, Sawyer from Lost getting axed in the opening scenes. No, I knew it was Sawyer from Lost, and I also knew he wasn't going to be a big part of this. J.J. Abrams produced this film, and if you've worked for him on TV, he'll give you 10 minutes before he kills you in a movie. <laughs> yes, I guess that Carrie Russell. And we know <laughs> that they do this. I mean, like Scream, this is a franchise that takes pride, and only the second one is one where they haven't bumped a name actor off in the opening. But this is really quick. I mean, it's so quick that I think that he's going to come back. I'm shocked when <laughs> I realized he was not wearing a bulletproof vest. He comes back in flashbacks only. Yes. And his assassin, I didn't recognize her at first, but maybe you haven't seen Blue is the Warmest Color. If she had blue hair, I might have known her instantly, but she was a big part of the Oscar winner from a couple years ago. But yeah, she gets him really quick, and suddenly we have a femme fatale, we have a dead body, we have Cruz looking pretty good, busting out of jail. I'm into this movie. I can't say I'm into it. I'm not out of it either. I'm appreciating that this is the first time in the entire series that we have intentional comic relief, though. These movies have been very self-serious even before 9-11. But to have Simon Pegg here cracking jokes, I'm having more fun, but I can't say I'm sucked into the story. I'm rightfully confused. They're playing it close to the vest. I agree, Artie. I don't know what's going on. They're saying something about sweepers and uh, that one Russian that Cruz helped get out. He's taken away. Who knows where he's going? We're hearing about Cobalt and Russian launch codes. And yeah, I'm still trying to figure out where is this going because I've just seen a lot of stuff in the first few minutes here. Other agents getting killed. I want to know well, what is the story. So I, I haven't been sucked in like I was last time with three that had that great opener. I think this movie has a storytelling flaw because I'm enjoying it when I watch it. But just to jump to the next day after I saw it, I found myself going, so what was Josh Halloway carrying that got him killed? Exactly how did all this fit together? What was going on to make this happen? It's so detailed that it almost washes over me. And it reminds me of the James Bond movies we did. I enjoy the action, but if you ask me why they go where they go and how they know to go there, it's a dropped line. Somebody says it. There is a reason, but... It wasn't easily absorbed or remembered the next day. I wasn't having trouble following this. What I thought I heard set me up for a movie I didn't get. I thought there was a shadow team. We found out that Hannaway was being pursued by someone else. And later when they're breaking into the Kremlin, we find out that someone else has beat them to what they're stealing, a file. So I think that we're going to see another 
impossible team, maybe on the Russian side or maybe within the IMF, who is going to rival the team we see assembled. That's actually not what it is. It's actually just a kooky nut guy that wants to blow yeah. up the world <laughs> and a henchman that I guess is willing to do anything for him. That's a bit of a disappointment, but I think at least in the opening here, we're going to see Mission Impossible Team 1 versus Mission Impossible Team 2. And that's not what I was thinking or hoping for. After Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'm like, Give me a good villain. Give me a strong actor as a villain. Give me one who I enjoy standing up to Tom Cruise. Who's this guy and how do you pronounce his last name? Nyquist? <laughs> Michael Nyquist was a flavor of the moment. He was in the original Swedish girl with the dragon tattoo. He was the reporter main character. So the boring guy that got paired with the punk girl. The Daniel Craig role. Yeah, he made the same impression. I've seen that original Swedish version. Made the same impression in that as he did here. I don't know who he is. I don't really care about him. Yeah, this is a step down. I, I need a good villain or at least a good actor that's going to draw me in. With one, I'll even go with the actress that played Max or Seymour Hoffman in the third one here. Yeah, he's bland to me. I don't care about him ever. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It, it is a flaw of this movie that they have such a underdeveloped villain that not only is the actor not bringing anything to the part, but when we finally find out what he wants, and that's basically just to nuke everyone, it is as laughable as anything from the campiest Roger Moore era Bond. I had to go on Wikipedia because I'm like, what was this guy's motivation? Did I miss it? No, he just wants to blow up the world because he believes that's inevitable anyway. So why not speed it up? He's, he's just a crazy mustache twirling guy. Bad villain. It's a bad villain. I'll give you that. But cool toys. I want to say this is the movie. If you like spy movies, you know a large part of the thrill of Bond is whatever Q gives him to play with here. There's some really neat stuff here. I love the way that they go down this hall and break into the file room with the screen. Oh, that screen is awesome. Of course, being Brad Bird, it's powered by an iPad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that is amazing. I'm like, this is how it would work. Somebody sat down and theoretically thought about it and it was like, what we show has to shift with the perspective of the person looking. So we have to track their eye movements and have a camera that reflects it. Because, I mean, I've seen people with cloaking shields. You know, they were big around the time of Harry Potter. People were actually coming up with cloths that would cloak you. But what they were is a camera on the back and a screen on the front. And to see this... Wow, this was really cool. Yeah, it's inventive, and I like that. They're coming up with new ideas, new gadgets, something I wouldn't have thought of, and I like that. What are they trying to get, though, in the Kremlin? Like, I thought they were going after codes. I, I heard something about codes in the beginning. There's Cobalt, this bad guy that wants codes, but it looks like they're going after a film strip. What were they trying to get? The codes were already taken. That is what Hanaway had in Budapest. That was the mission, to get the launch codes. That was taken by the French girl assassin. What they're going for is the information on who Cobalt is. They know the codename Cobalt. They don't know who it is. They find the Russians know who it is. Very lucky Cobalt happens to be breaking in at the exact same time. No, not at the exact same time, ahead of them. I think that he's got something to prove. I think that he knows something. I think it's another mole story. Yeah, I was going to say, is there another mole that we're going to have to find out about in the IMF? This is the only one that doesn't have a mole. And yet Ethan is still on the run. This time he's going to be running from KGB or whatever is after the KGB. It's no longer the Soviet Union, but you can tell this guy, Anatoly Sidorov, is old school. 
He is going to be incensed about the fact that the Kremlin blows up in a very spectacular way, giving us our Tom Cruise gets blown towards the screen scene that is now, I realize, as important as bungees and all of that. (laughs) So after that, this is the Russian 9-11. He is certain that this guy is guilty of it. He knows it's not a gas main break. He is going to be pursuing Ethan throughout the movie. So we still have a character being chased, but instead of it being... uh, corrupted agent within his organization it's the other side it's the russians that are going to chase him this is the plot strand that mattered least to me and that i forgot about a lot of the time is that this russian agent was after him i mean we're talking about a nuclear weapon and because of this bomb that goes off in the kremlin that he's framed for because cobalt starts broadcasting on the imf frequency which The Russians could listen into the IMF frequency. Why were they using it in the first place? But because they think Ethan did this, I think Ethan has to stop a nuclear bomb from destroying the Earth. This is just like an extra hurdle. It's an extra annoyance. Anytime this guy comes up, Ethan gets away really easily. That he keeps showing up, it's like a pest. And it finally pays off at the end of the movie. The guy finally has a purpose in the closing frames of the film. But the rest of the time, I'm like, what? I feel like that's a flaw that happens a lot in this movie. Like, there's a lot of unneeded stuff. Like, Ethan goes to the phone to get his mission. It's supposed to self-destruct. It doesn't. He's got to walk over and tap on it to make it blow up. That's a tweak. That's what I'm talking about. They tweak this. Why have it blow up again? The point is, it's a little rusty this time. This time, you got to tap it to make it self-destruct. I'll point out some other ones then, where it just, it seems to needlessly complicate things and add tension that doesn't need to be there or or just draw scenes out i mean there's a scene here where we're gonna see a family they're gonna get kidnapped again i don't know what's going on i don't know who this family is they just know they need to get on the run we're gonna see the guy reappear for a few minutes later on but there's just a lot going on here and it's not very clear with telling me what i'm supposed to care about what i'm supposed to pay attention to that is not clear isn't a problem that when we finally get answers they're so simplistic is i'll give you that my problem actually is There's just too many white European dudes, and they all kind of look the same. (laughs) It's kind of hard to keep track. Cobalt and his assistant and this guy, Anatoly, and yeah, they're all indistinct. I feel like by being in this Russian environment, it all becomes kind of a blur. It's basically Tom Cruise running away from the cast of Valkyrie is kind of how it feels like. (laughs) And he should. That was a terrible movie. There's one character... Who I am completely lost about and I need you guys to explain to me because I watched the movie I read the wiki I'm still confused after he gets the nuclear launch codes and while Ethan is running from this Russian cop the terrorist goes to somebody's house and kidnaps him and takes his wife and child hostage. They're going to use him to verify the codes in Dubai. That is the only reason they kidnapped that guy. I don't know why they couldn't write that simpler. I don't know why you need a whole other character, a whole another scene to do that. You don't need to find out that his family is in jeopardy. He's going to get shot anyway. It doesn't matter. I hate to say it, but yes, he's not a part of the team. We don't really care whether he lives or dies. He is a peripheral character. Of course, in the situation, Tom Cruise has already established He wants no casualties. He doesn't want anyone to die during one of their stings. So, yes, it's sad the guy got shot when we get to Dubai, but that we build up to him and see a family and kidnapped, I think it sets up intrigue that it can't meet. It invites a backstory for a character that ends up being very functional and not really being someone we needed to know 
personal information about. So that you're confused doesn't surprise me. But he is, yes, the same person that later will be in the room with Windstrom in Dubai. He can look at the codes and know whether they're legit or not. So apparently you need to steal him. Why steal the codes if he knows what the codes are? Yeah, he could just write them down for you. <laughs> I think. Plot's not the strong suit here. Again, what I want to focus on is the fun of this. It's the gadgets, it's the team, it's the locations. It's not dissimilar from last week. You know, the plot is what the plot is. It gets us from one scene to the next. But it's the fun of watching the Kremlin blow up. I mean, that's an incredible scene. Amazing. That visual. I couldn't believe, you know, these movies have been fairly tame with their destruction. Things are going to happen but never do. When I see that come down, I'm like, damn, they really went for that. Yeah, and I feel like many of the scenes here are strong. I thought the prison break was good. I think Escape from the Hospital is funny. I mean, Sidorov may be a lame pursuer, but he has a funny exchange when he sees Cruz out on the ledge and gives him that look and baits him to try and jump down into that garbage. Yeah, that was amusing when he uses the belt like a zip line. I mean, Sidorov, he's smiling like the cat who ate the canary. And then when he sees that Ethan's actually going to get away, it's kind of a funny moment. It's the only funny moment not involved with Simon Pegg. <laughs> Agreed. But I just want to say you're right. I mean, if we're going to focus on plot, I think we're going to find a lot of boring characters with ill-defined motivations. And I feel this film takes a lot of time focusing on plot. That's the problem. Now, it depends on how serious you want to take it. I mean, up to this point, the only thing that matters here, all that all this really has done is establish that yet again, Ethan Hunt must go it alone, will not be taking orders like he ever did, that he and his team are going to have to ghost protocol it or whatever the hell the code word of the day is. The entire IMF has been ghost protocol. The United States government has disavowed everyone at this point because of the bombing in Russia. That is what ghost protocol is, is the entire IMF is disbanded and the agents are all on their own. Yeah, the secretary's going to resign. Yeah, everyone's in trouble. When you blow up the Kremlin, you're really in the doghouse. But Stuart, what you're saying is how much does the plot matter? It's the difference between being an active viewer and a passive viewer. And a lot of times, like every time before our retrospective series that I watched a James Bond film... I was more than happy to be a passive viewer. And if it wasn't that I had to review this for now playing, I would have happily been a passive viewer for this Mission Impossible as well. But in attempting to be an active viewer, and one who, more to the point, has to write a freaking plot summary, so I have to have some monochrome of explanation, it's very frustrating that this film is not better at telling its story. And is that a problem from the director? Is it a problem from the writers, this Applebaum and Andre Nemec? I will say they did write the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie we did not like so much last summer. Oof. That's why the villain's the same here. <laughs> and Beverly Hills Cop 4 coming out soon. I smell a retrospective. Mm, maybe it's coming soon. We'll see. <laughs> but yeah, I do feel like the writing is, you know, the writing in all of these have been kind of weak. I mean, let's not single out this one. They're all a little weak. The third one was the most simple. Therefore, it was the easiest to convey. 
And it sounds like, Jacob, that one was what you prefer rather than go through these convolutions that don't pay out. I had no problems following the second movie. The first movie, yeah, I don't think the script had motivations in it. I think it was rewritten and made up to the point of being nonsensical. But this one, it feels like there's a script. It's just not well written. Yeah, I'm with you. And I'm just not having those... I guess those fun moments that I had, even with one, again, this cobalt is so bland, and yeah, this is convoluted. With that first one, there was still Max, there was still Luther, there were still characters that brought some fun. I don't know, maybe we'll get it now that Jeremy Renner's going to enter the picture. Maybe we'll get someone I like. Yeah, actually, he makes a rather unimpressive entrance. If we didn't know this actor, we wouldn't think anything of this analyst sitting next to the security chief that's going to be retiring. That's Tom Wilkinson. He's a character actor I've seen many times before. I certainly wasn't expecting him to get a bullet in the head, but I would have predicted that Brant was going to wind up with Ethan on the run. I didn't even recognize Jeremy Renner because I was looking at the secretary. I was wowed. I'm like, oh my God, I've heard about the secretary for so many years. I thought it might actually be the secretary of state. <laughs> I didn't know IMF had its own secretary and that he was there was blowing my mind, and I was so focused on him, I wasn't paying any attention to the analyst until, like, he starts actually running off some numbers and looking at stuff, and then I'm like, oh, that's Jeremy Renner. And I do like that Renner, he's doing a good job throwing you off that this is actually gonna be an action star at the beginning here. Well, it's Cruz. Like, if Cruz is going to do all of that stuff, would they really give another guy that part? I, I think he is gonna be the nerd that's going to, like, have all the info. He looks weak when the car tips over and they wind up at the bottom of a lake. It is for Ethan to figure out a way out as the bullets are flying. It's a dumb escape. And, and he even admits it. They even have a dialogue about, why did you put a flare on the dead guy and push him down the river? If this movie has one thing that I love most, it's the self-referential stupidity. Later on, Tom Cruise is going to hit a button and say, mission accomplished, which is so cheesy. And Luther calls him on it. <laughs> yes, exactly. They know, again, the tweaking. They realize when a movie gets into its fourth chapter, it starts to look like it's repeating itself. It starts to become a parody of itself. Here, they're doing their best to tweak it and to make formula feel fresh and funny. Is that why when they get to like the train station, you know, they're going to go on an IMF train that looks like a regular boxcar, but hardy har har, they got to like jump and dodge things so they could get a retinal scan. Maybe you're seeing that as a self-referential joke. To me, it's just kind of annoying. It's just put in the code, get on the train, let's move along. It's 50 minutes in when we finally get Ghost Protocol put into action. It's taken a while to get here. I want to know what the plot is. Don't you think it's kind of Incredibles? I mean, Incredibles was... A superhero family. It was mostly about the family dynamic. We are going to spend time on the dynamic of this team. It's the same people on the train that were at the beginning. They're not going to switch them up or kill people off. It's still Simon Pegg and Paula Patton, and now we have Jeremy Renner as well. I feel like the jokes would have played in Incredibles. I feel like it's the same touch. I agree completely. <laughs> That's a negative for you then, isn't it? <laughs> but, well, I recommended The Incredibles. Yes, I wanted to get back to that. Is <laughs> Where do you stand on The Incredibles? I know that you were the least charmed of the three of us by it. Yeah, but I enjoy seeing this with live action, with two stars I enjoy pulling 
slapstick physical comedy is fun. But when you mention The Incredibles, yeah, I could very easily see this being done by Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl using her stretch powers to get around these posts while trying to get the retinal scan. I'm amused here. Yeah, I, I'm with this movie. I At no point am I not. I mean, I think that Bird's Touch is evident and needed. I wouldn't have wanted another self-serious one like the third one, even though I saw it as the right movie for its time. The time has passed. We need to have a different vibe. I like that each Mission Impossible has its own character and flavor. Some of the flavors I didn't enjoy, but I appreciate the variance. I'm going to go a step further and say this is the best performance Tom Cruise has given in all four. He's the most likable here. Hmm. I will say he's got that long hair again. I haven't complained about it. It doesn't bug me here. So that's saying something with his performance. It's longer, but it's not that horrible cut. It's way better styled, yeah. He stopped going to great clips. (laughs) I guess my problem is, yeah, this is stuff that would work in The Incredibles. The thing is, in The Incredibles, it wasn't about a dude nuking the world. And that's what the plot is here. That's what the bad guy is doing. He wants to blow up the world. Yeah, ironically, the cartoon had a more sophisticated villain than (laughs) the live-action movie. That's taking a twist I wouldn't expect. But, yeah, I don't feel like we're thinking about Cobalt a lot, honestly. Maybe it sounds like you really were. You were trying to figure him out. I was spending time with the team. You know, I think that Ethan has some good moments here with Agent Jane Carter. You know, she has similar grief. You know, it's come to this point we're starting to realize that Julia, the wife, may have been killed and that Ethan has a similar sadness to him that Jane is experiencing, having just lost her mentor and maybe lover. I'm not sure what her relationship was with Hannaway, but I don't know. I, I finally am seeing Cruz interact with someone else on screen and it, it being meaningful for both sides. I feel like this is different. It's not a crazy concept to have a team movie where the ensemble plays off each other, but it's the first time where I feel like other team members matter and influence the story. Yeah, I wish I understood more about the villain, but I'm enjoying watching the heroes, especially when they get to Dubai. Yes. Yeah, Dubai is the best part of this film. Clearly, yeah. Yes, definitely the highlight. Literally high. Yeah, it's sad (laughs) they had to go on. I wish they could have just made the climax here because it's where all the best stuff is. There was one thing I knew from the trailer is that Tom Cruise was going to end up climbing up the side of this spectacular skyscraper, which I assume is maybe real. Real. Yeah, I believe it's, isn't it the tallest building in the world? It is the tallest building in the world, but they hung Tom Cruise out the 144th story of it. Yeah. No, Cruise does his own stunts. He's going to hang from an airplane in Rogue Nation, for real. For real? That plane took off? Yeah. Yes, that is real. Wow, it blows my mind, but they had like a half an hour feature. I would have just thought this was green screen, or they recreated the side of the building on a soundstage or something. I couldn't believe all the stories. There's great behind-the-scenes stories of this, but it freaked me out that he's up there. And as a person who's afraid of heights, even if this was fake, when they do that flyover of the top of the building and you're looking straight down, I wish I had seen this in theaters. I wish I had seen it in its IMAX presentation because I probably would have gotten a little dizzy and I would enjoy a film that affects me that way. I felt this was very effective. I normally don't think of myself worried that Tom Cruise is going to fall to his death. But here, there were a few moments, <laughs> a few cuts where I was like, wow, this you know, the glove thing, it's funny. It gives 
gives Peg something to do, and yes, it gives Cruz a moment to really shine as an action star. I feel like, yeah, what a just a great centerpiece scene. I'm just like, do you shoot this first or shoot this last in case he falls? <laughs> Who would have thought that that opening for two would finally pay off as well with him <laughs> rock climbing? <laughs> right, exactly. He should be loving this. If this were the guy from two, he ought to be like flipping and yawning and being like, oh, this is so easy. The irony is Tom Cruise himself was flipping. He was just having a ball out there. He had to be more subdued as Ethan. Oh, wow. Again, though, plot-wise, the reason he has to do this is because they got to take over the servers. They got to come in from the outside of the building. They can't. It will take too long to hack in. So, of course, yeah, cut the windows open, and and they have these magnetic gloves, thankfully. We see Ethan before they fly off to Dubai. He's got suitcases full of stuff. Who knows what other kind of gadgets. The gadgets have really stepped up here. So now he's got Spider-Man gloves. I like that they're semi-defective. I wish I knew why they were (laughs) semi-defective. Were they made in a rush? Were they unproven? There's no... Chekhov's broken glove. Everything is defective. The mask, the 3D printer breaks during this scene. <laughs> this is what happens when you're disavowed. You got the used equipment. Yeah, I think that's the point. I actually think that's the point for going ghost protocol is because they're cut off from the rest of the whole IMF. Yeah, they're dealing with equipment that can't be repaired or is faulty or or needs maintenance that it can't receive. So for whatever reason, they look like a bumbling team. And I respond to that. I like the humanity of seeing a team that still pulls it off. They still do this incredible caper here, but not without some, you know, hair-raising turns here, right? From having to, yeah, cut the glass and climb up the side to get to the server, to go into the meetings on two different floors without masks. I mean, that's an even bigger deal for Ethan and William. That's confusing to me. I would have thought Moreau, the assassin from the beginning, would know who she was looking for, and like eyes with Wistrom, Cobalt's assistant, I would have thought he would have known the assassin who he's looking for, but I guess they don't. They don't know who they're meeting, they just know they're trading diamonds for nuclear launch codes, and in Ethan's most reckless move out of this franchise, sure, he gave up a knock list, and he gave up whatever the rabbit's foot was, but now he's going to give up the real nuclear launch codes because Wistrom has brought that other Russian who will verify the codes and make sure they're real. Yeah, it has to be real or they'll be busted because they have that Russian do that's that's his whole point there that's why they underline him and give him that moment that none of us likes is that they can't fake it they can't just give him fake codes it has to be the real ones i just like the doppelganger effect of of how they've created the same room on two different levels and had part of the team pretending to be sabine and part of the team pretending to be the buyers i I think that that works really well here i think this is a a really good ruse no and i like the tech here brant Renner's character has this contact that could take photos. So he's going to look at the codes, take photos with the contact, which is going to send it to a Wi-Fi printer inside the suitcase that Carter has. I like all the tech here. The end of carpal tunnel syndrome, right? I mean, we never have to type again. Everything we see can be put onto paper. Did Google Glass do that? They need to add that in to their next upgrade. Yeah, they're trying to get away from paper like that. It'll all go to Google Docs. There you go. (laughs) But no, I like this ruse a lot. I like Sabine. Again, I didn't know the actress, but... She has a menace and an attractiveness. It's kind of a La Femme Nikita thing going on. Something about her eyes that give her this menacing look. Yeah. She's the best villain in the movie. Honestly, they should have made her the one. Honestly, she kills the guy at the beginning. And she's, yeah, she's real ruthless here. She makes the determinant once she has what she wants to kill these guys. I mean, she's just ruthless. 
I think she noticed the contact in Renner's eye. He kept blinking, and that's why she decided to kill him. Sure, but that the fact that he had a special contact didn't necessarily mean that, you know... It meant something was up, and that's enough for her to kill them. Yeah, I, she jumps to a few conclusions there. I, I feel like her modus operandi is kill first, ask questions later, and that's why we like her. Is she has that scariness that we want from a classic Bond villain. She feels like she could be a foe for 007. She has a understandable motivation. She wants her money, not she wants to kill everyone on the planet for reasons unknown. Yeah, and I like the way they pair her against Agent Jane. I think that Carter has a reason to hate her because she liked Hannaway, and so she's going to get vengeance here. We get a girl fight that has some real stakes. Again, wow, who would have thought? characters that matter other than Ethan in a Mission Impossible movie. Here's the problem for me, though. Ethan tells Carter, don't kill her. We need her for information. She's going to kill her. It was kind of necessary. You leave Simon Pegg with a gun and hold, you know, leave it up to him for security detail. Not the most reliable. Moreau ends up getting kicked out a window. There's no repercussion. There's nothing. What damage is there to the mission? Because they didn't capture Moreau and keep her alive. The same one that allowing Leonid to die, the guy that verified the codes. None. (laughs) Exactly. None. I think Ethan just hates death. I think that he likes his missions to be neat and clean. You knock him out, but you never kill him. And to my point about how this film, it's just makes things endlessly complicated. It's not just that Ethan's got to catch Wistrom because he has the real launch codes now, but now that KGB Russian cop is also there chasing him. And there's a sandstorm coming in. <laughs> that sandstorm looks cool. It's cool. I thought for sure that that was going to come into play when Cruz was scaling the building because Simon Pegg said, oh, it's so far away, don't worry about it. And Simon Pegg's never been right. So (laughs) I thought for sure it was going to hit him on the side of the building. And when it doesn't, I literally forgot about it. And when this chase begins and the sand's coming out, I'm like, oh, they're really doing it. And the way it's filmed is really great. I mean, it could have been shot on a soundstage the size of my bedroom for as much visibility as you have, but it works. It adds a sense of claustrophobia. This movie had just been so open 144 stories up to have this car chase and crews having to wear a mask to stop the sand. It is a wonderful contrast that keeps me engaged. Yeah, no no complaints with anything in, here in Dubai. I think it's great. And a good comparative. I mean, we just saw a very similar scene in Furious 7 here. And, and this just goes to show... You leave spy work to the real spies, not to the carjackers. Or shoot more films in Dubai, though Sex in the City too. That may disprove that theory. <laughs> I'd be fine with more Dubai movies. I, I think it's a neat location, and I'd like to go myself one day. Yeah, can we just visit a set of a movie in Dubai? Because I'd just like to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Why, though? Mm. I, I feel like I'm the one asking a lot of whys. I know where you're going, and I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> Why did Hendrix wear a mask to be disguised as Wistrom? What does that do for the movie, for the plot, for anything? I guess he didn't trust his own assistant to get the codes. But the guy's like a foot taller than him. I mean, it must take real prosthetics to pull this off. I don't know. (laughs) Stilts. I thought this is when we're going to find out who the mole was because, Mm. yeah, you get that moment where Ethan's holding part of a mask and you're like, oh, that's someone important. No, it's just this generic bad guy that we were chasing anyway, that we wanted anyway. He's making it easier. Jacob, the difference between a good and a great movie is a great movie does have answers for you. I don't think this is a great movie. I think this is good fun. And I guess that's what I want to stress here. 
Oftentimes we get hung up talking about how plots don't work, a very common problem with most blockbusters, because, well, they don't have to. As long as they play to an international audience with a visual language, it doesn't really matter what they're saying or what they're doing. And I'm trying to appreciate it on that international level that it was made. I think that it's still working as an action movie, and that's important to stress first before you talk about that, yeah, this is kind of a dumb, inane plot. And Stuart, I think you hit the nail on the head for me. When I said I wasn't really paying attention to the plot and it was washing over me, this movie could have been in German for as much as I was really paying attention to the plot. The Jeremy Renner, I might have killed Tom Cruise's wife plot. Okay, that one goes with me. But the, anything involving this nuclear warhead, this film could be in Mandarin. And I still would enjoy it as much. That's a problem for me. It's washing over me. Until we get to Dubai, I haven't cared about anything. Dubai, I've liked this action piece. This was a good action piece for me. Yeah, sure, there was an explosion with the Kremlin. I wanted to be invested. At least in Dubai, I'm still not invested. At least I've had some fun. I just wish we would have stayed there because I feel that fun's going to go away again. You got to meet the series where it's at. And I feel like this is the most fun I've had in a Mission Impossible movie. Does that make it a great movie? Not yet. But if they're each getting better, then there's always hope that the next one will engage me. Once they finally fire Tom Cruise, I think I'm really going to like this (laughs) franchise. But as long as it's in it, it's still a Tom Cruise action franchise. And I think that if you have problems with him, those will remain consistent. And I I think that I'm just trying to grade on a curve and say, for a Tom Cruise movie, this is pretty excellent. I do really like the scene where Tom Cruise pulls a gun on Jeremy Renner and Jeremy Renner shows he's a badass by disarming Tom Cruise. It shows that Tom Cruise is stepping away. Yes, and it begs the question, why is someone so good in the field wasting time as an analyst? What's his story? I was excited, again. Oh, a character that's going to get a whole monologue talking about their own trauma, what they did in Croatia, how it went wrong. I'm thinking, yes, take it away from Cruz. Make this your moment. And then you find out, no. It's all about Cruz. Yeah, it was all about him failing to protect Cruz and his wife and that he went jogging with him. And and I guess that Ethan doesn't remember him from that. He, He feels that Ethan doesn't remember that he was the bodyguard that failed. I actually think that Ethan knows this all along and is just turning the screws because he's a dick. Yes, he he does know. We'll find out at the very end, the last twist, that of course, I mean, Ethan, you never make Tom Cruise a total sap. He He's always ahead of the other characters. But in this moment, when we're learning about it, I was excited and then I was disappointed to find out, nope, it's still all about Ethan. And yes, Brant is going to have to work it out with him. That's how I think it'll resolve is that They're going to save a life together for the life that he failed to take. He is going to get the bungee cord scene of the movie. That's a staple of this franchise. But this time the twist is... No bungee, though. Yes, it's magnets. No need for a cord anymore. Wireless. This was a step too far for me. I was able to go with the screen and the Spider-Man gloves. Ah, This whole magnet thing, though, was with this cart that's supposed to drive him around. It was a little too out there. It's out there, but fun in in a way that I could see even Connery doing this 30 years ago. I feel like this is in the tradition. (laughs) It would work in a campy James Bond film, yeah. It is in the tradition of spy movies. And while this Mission Impossible series has not been some of my favorite spy movies, the more they can throw this kind of stuff in, the better it's going to endear this franchise to me. My thought on it was that it's 
comic relief because you got Simon Pegg trying to control the fan and everything and he's not doing so well at it. So to me, it was a welcome sigh of relief after the intense action in Dubai to get some lighthearted action going on. I really like every Peg scene. I gotta ask, Jacob, you're grousing about the plot. Do you like the Peg scenes? Yeah, I like Peg. He's funny. I There's a balance that I need and Peg, maybe because he is a comedic actor, I'm willing to go with that. When he's on the screen, it's when some of the other antics are going on. I'm I'm less likely. It's like Tom Cruise doing Kung Fu. It's just, I don't associate him with that peg because I associate him as a comic actor. Yeah, I do enjoy his performance. Okay. And Brant, do you want him to take over this franchise? I still don't feel like he's taking away the show. I feel like he's going to absolve for a mistake he made, but I don't get the sense by this point, if Tom Cruise was leaving the franchise, you'd have him making speed and you'd have this new guy stepping up to the plate. And I don't feel that happening here at all. That is the surprise to me, because I, I was led to believe uh, through press, through people who'd seen the film, oh yeah, this is Tom Cruise steps down. This is all about Jeremy Renner taking over the role. So I thought he was going to have a bigger part in this climax. No, it's it's still all about Cruise at this climax. Yeah, they're setting him up as a background character. I'm really curious to see the new film to see, is that still the case? Is it still the Tom Cruise show, because if you're going to hand over the reins, well, you have to actually do that. You know, one day, and it probably won't be until Mission Impossible 7, it's going to be Cruise gets (laughs) killed in the opening. He will get the Emilio Estevez death, but uh, it's not the next film. I know that that's the case. No, he's in disguise again. He's going to get to wear the tux and be sexy and walk around the party. The plot, if we must get back into it, is that, all right, the bad guy has the codes, he has everything that he needs, but he needs a satellite to get it off the ground. I feel like I'm watching someone play the Atari ET game where you got to go around <laughs> and collect all the little pieces. Like, I'm like, he's got the codes. Okay. He can launch. Oh, no. Now he's got to get the launch. Oh, no. Now he needs to get the satellite. Like, oh. It does feel like they're making it up as they go. And then even then, when they launch the missile, they got to figure out a way to turn it. Like, they, they will not accept it. He'll be out there with radiation pills after we're all melted being like, it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, he's always got a silver lining. But anyway, the point is that I do like this little ripple. If you will, that the cable empire of this tycoon named Nath, he's an Indian entrepreneur. He got there by using old Russian satellites. So all the things he uses to transmit his junky television shows are actually used to be, yes, armament for nuclear weapons. That's kind of a funny idea. But this character, Anil Kapoor, he was in Slumdog Millionaire. He's usually a rascal. He's a funny guy, underused. It's just, he's just here so Jane has someone to seduce. And even then, and she's unsuccessful. It doesn't matter. Yeah. If she doesn't get the code in time for it to matter, exactly so. It all will fall down to Ethan and a car. What I liked last time about the team's failures, making them actually seem human and mortal, here just becomes a comedy of errors. It, it again, it enforces that you have no team without Ethan. I mean, that's, that's just really what it comes down to, is that everyone is pretty good at their job, but collectively they will fail without the, the superhero saving the day, driving to the satellite station, confronting him. Hendrix in a parking garage, having what's kind of a neat conclusion here. I've always been a little blasé on the final fights, but this works for me. You like this automated car factory? I don't even understand the geography at this point. It's a parking garage. 
Is that what it was? Yeah, it's like we saw in Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, the automated parking garage. Yeah. All right, I was totally lost at where they were going and where they were running, and I thought this was like some, like, from Speed Racer, where they had those auto-making machines and lifting cars around and... It feels that way, but I feel like Hendrix, his one good moment is here when he realizes the best way to keep the device out of Cruz's hand is to commit suicide. That was kind of a nice moment. This whole fight here made me think of like a Mario game from jumping yeah. from moving platform to moving platform and doing these big leaps. I hate jumping games. I'm sure it is a video game, right? I mean, these things all end up being <laughs> video games. There are designers that watch these movies and say, okay, this is the one that we play. And what's weird is that the missile has been launched. Benji and Brant and Carter, they're all trying to fix the satellite machine so the signal could be sent to abort this missile. But if this was launched, wouldn't everyone hit theirs? Like, I thought that was the key. Like, don't we have mechanisms in place? So, like, if the Russians launch something, we know and re-hit all our buttons and launch back? I don't know, Jacob. It seems weird if your plan was to blow up the Earth, you can't just shoot one nuke. Everyone's got to fire at the same time. I think that is the plan, is that when he nukes San Francisco, Washington will fire all their nukes back. Yeah, yeah, he's not going to control anything more than the one missile that's going to presumably hit the transatlantic building in San Francisco. And instead, it's deactivated at the last second, bounces off it, falls into the bay. Yeah, I couldn't follow why Benji was doing what he was doing and how he was doing it. But of course, like every comedic person in every movie ever, hell, like... Nick Frost in Hot Fuzz. He was funny the whole time, but at the very end, all of a sudden, he can kick some ass. He gets the shot in. I could buy that more than Julia, Ethan Hunt's wife in the last film. At least he's a trained agent. Yeah, you just never see the trained agent in him. I've really enjoyed him when he's whispering under his breath as they're going into the Kremlin. You just see him as a goofy presence, and then that he brings the lethal force. I really like that turn. It's cliche, but I'm a fan of Simon Pegg, and so to see him do it, I'm for it. He actually has a bigger point in all of this. He saves a life. Yeah, his skills are put to use in the right way, and the movie's better for him being a part of it. And you couldn't say that last movie. But maybe like Jeremy Renner. They introduced Simon Pegg last time, made him a bigger part here. They're introducing Jeremy Renner this time. Maybe he'll actually co-star in rogue nation who knows i don't know i haven't seen the cast list i haven't seen anything except Cruz hanging off the side of a plane is he coming back can he do this i feel like there's going to be some lawsuits he can't be jason Bourne and mission impossible and <laughs> hawkeye and you gotta stop him at some point he can't be every spy He's not James Bond yet. He should be the new Felix Leiter. I feel like he might be done. Honestly, this feels like, yeah, he could be a part of their team next time. Or it could just be the story about someone who realized, oh, I didn't kill your wife. I'm so glad. Spoiler alert, he comes back in the next one. Oh, okay. Well, thanks. <laughs> Is he an Emilio? Or is he a peg, though? that That's what we're wondering. Is he going to last? Yeah. Hey, there you go. I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> I think he's dead meat. I do not think, I do not believe Jeremy Renner is going to have a major role in the continuing of this franchise. Well, what about this end here? Luther shows up in a cameo. I was really happy. He keeps the streak alive, even if it's just a cameo. <laughs> Cruz cannot best Ving Rhames for the number of Mission Impossible movies. Ving will show up for one scene. I'm glad 
might have meant something to you. He's kind of funny here. He's basically mocking them as they're all celebrating in San Francisco about being alive. I'm more confused about what happens after this powwow. Of course, Luther is still a part of the team. Of course, Jane is still a part of the team. And eventually, Branch is going to realize that he can be a part of the team. But what does that mean for Ethan and his marriage? I don't actually understand what I'm seeing in the last moments of this film. She's there in scrubs, going into a restaurant. I know she works in Washington, D.C., so she has been moved to San Francisco. Does she know that Ethan is going to be there? Do they see each other on every other weekend? How is this working? I took it as he and she are together under deep cover. So she's there, he's there, and they meet up clandestine. But that's not much of a marriage. I don't know. It's it's all very weird. She's pretty touchy-feely with that other orderly she's going to that bar with. It's like she just got off of work. So, at Fisherman's Wharf, no less. I'm like, why would she go there if she was a local? And she wasn't a local last movie. But she smiles at Ethan. She looks at Ethan and smiles. Yeah, but she doesn't know he's there. It's a smile of recognition. It's a smile of, oh my god, I didn't know you would be here. So, to which I ask, what are you doing here? But I guess I'm glad she's here. If they're going to tell us that she meant so much in the last movie, it's the right impulse to have her still mean something in this movie. And it would have been wrong to kill her off or just write her out. I'm looking very much forward to next week's movie to explain this to me. I don't even know if she's in it, but... If she's not, or if she is, you can't just not mention her. Not after two films. Yeah, they'll address it in some way, and uh, hopefully in a plausible way that's acceptable, because but does beg question. I guess Cruz still wants to be thought of as a monogamous, sane family man. Which means Jeremy Renner's going to get all the chicks. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol? Jacob. I get that sometimes we're great on a curve. Fast and Furious, not really your thing, but does it satisfy a few criteria where you could probably give it a recommend? I, that's what I struggle with this particular one. It's right in the middle for me. There's nothing I super hate about it. It's, it's got a plot that makes no sense. We saw that with one. But man, it really doesn't make any sense. It's got a bad villain. Well, we saw that with two. Uh, there's a couple of great set pieces. I really only like Dubai. Most of the time I found myself disengaged with this film, though, because I thought the plot was supposed to be important, but it's not. We're supposed to be taken in by these action set pieces. And with something like The Fast and the Furious, well, when we got to those last four films, yeah, I was able to get into those stunts and kind of just go along with all the silliness. Here, it's a shift in tone that I wasn't prepared for and I never bought into with some of the uh, funnier aspects that the director who did The Incredibles, yeah, you'd expect him to bring in here. And at the end of the day, I was bored throughout most of this, and I kind of just washed over me. I remember the first time I watched this film. By the time we got to Mumbai, and we got to that parking garage, and Mario leaping from platform to platform, I just didn't care anymore, and that's how I felt again watching it. So it's a weak not recommend for me. Stuart. Not recommend. Okay. Well, I, this is the best of the bunch. It's a recommend, but I get ambivalence. I do feel that way about the whole franchise. Uh, to be quite honest, when I think about spy series, I like the Oceans movies better. I like the Die Hard movies, at least part of them better. James Bond, the Daniel Craig era, this has nothing on that. Jason Bourne, we haven't covered him yet, but I'm willing to bet that most of those movies are better than most of the Mission Impossible movies. 
It's just sort of an inferior franchise, largely because it's built around the ego of Tom Cruise. And I honestly think that he is the asset and the negative. How you feel about him is how you're going to feel about this movie. That said, this team makes him better. This is the best Cruise performance of the four movies. This is the best team. This is the best movie. It's got the best gadgets. And no, it doesn't have the best villain. It's got a shitty plot and it's got an incomprehensible, simplistic villain that takes away a large part of why you'd get emotionally, mentally invested. But for a lark, and this series is nothing if not a lark. It's a lot more fun than the movie last week. And I think that it is, as you promised, Arnie, getting incrementally better with each film. It has me hoping for a lot next week with Rogue Nation. Maybe that'll be a strong recommend. This is just a recommend. I see both of your points. Compared to part three, this is a step down in terms of storytelling. We're almost, in regards to the villain and his motivation, back to part one storytelling. As why did John Voight shoot his wife? I have no freaking clue. So that is a negative. But the positive is the supporting cast has never been better. You look at part one. All right, part one did have John Renault and Ving Rames and John Voight, but half of them were evil. In part two... What team? There was that Billy guy. There's some uh, Aussie drove a <laughs> helicopter. You're going to go with Billy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was, that, was, that was a non-team. Part three, he had a decent team, but they weren't very memorable. I liked Luther, but he kind of still sat back at the computer as he always does. This time, you got Simon Pegg and Jeremy Renner. I can't say Paula did a whole lot for me. Her cleavage was nice. Oh, yeah, I, she did something for me physically. I just <laughs> the character. Yeah, I liked her. I liked her story, too. I mean, it's a simplistic one, but her feelings for Hannaway, it gave her something. Yeah, she was something, but they still haven't gotten a great female agent in these movies. They still kind of make them decorative versus effective. Everything is decorative for Cruise. I'm telling you, it's all jewelry for the Cruise man. <laughs> well, she could sit on my hand anytime. But Peg and Runner really elevate this movie's cast, and I think this has the best action scenes of the entire saga, with the high point literally being in Dubai. Yeah, that's true. The best action. You gotta admit, Jacob, this is the best action. Dubai. I like Dubai. I will give you that, yes. I like Dubai, I like seeing the Kremlin blow up, I like the break into the Kremlin with the tech. It's Mario-esque and a little funny, but I do like the action in the car park because it is kinetic and everything's moving around. There's a lot going on, it's multi-layered with Peg trying to hack the system while Cruz is trying to fight, admittedly, an old scientist. Not really a fair fight, but it's a well-choreographed fight at the end. Again, I'm impressed that this series hasn't, as the years have gone by, fallen into the trap of CGI. Yeah, they're using it here and there. They're erasing harnesses, and they're, they can't really blow up the Kremlin. But by and large, it's all practical. I applaud them. Best of the series, but still not a strong recommend. It's just recommend. And if they could bring this action and a coherent story this would have a strong recommend. Yeah, I don't know much about the one next week, but it doesn't have to break a sweat to give us a better story or a villain. Well, it's written and directed by the writer of one of my all-time favorite movies. The writer-director is Christopher McQuarrie, who wrote The Usual Suspects. If anyone can pen a tight script, 
I think it's him. Okay, we'll see. I'm, I'm open-minded. I want to see the movie. As for if he can direct, I have no freaking clue. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I think that they take on novices here. J.J. Abrams, his first movie. Brad Bird, his first live-action movie. Macquarie. Yeah, I, I think he'll be okay. I think the team built around making these movies successes at Paramount is strong, even if they're not as strongly represented on screen. Behind the scenes, I think he'll do okay. I have a good feeling that we're going to get something at least comparable to this week with Rogue Nation. I have no idea what to expect. I've seen one trailer. Yeah, I've seen one trailer, and it's got me jazzed. And not just in that Insidious 3 kind of (laughs) I'm, I'm jazzed anyway thing. I'm making myself jazzed because I have to see it, so therefore I'm going to be jazzed about it. Well, no, I never fake it, but Insidious 3, it was a bit stranger to be psyched for that film, but this one, I honestly think from the trailer, this is the Mission Impossible that would have gotten me back into theaters to see it, even without this retrospective series. With Christopher McQuarrie. Now, I've not seen Jack Reacher. Have either of you? Yeah, I saw it. No, but I heard good things about it. Because McQuarrie directed that too. So with McQuarrie and Cruz in there, that's probably our best guess for quality coming into this. Okay, it was like an episode of NCIS with a really good car scene and Cruz was miscast. It was okay. It was all right. Well, I'm hoping they can do better three years later after a lot of work on the next Mission Impossible. I'll I'll admit it. I'm just killing time until Spectre. Really, honestly, honest to God, this whole Mission (laughs) Impossible, I'm like, I want to get back to Bond. I'll be honest with you. But yeah, this will be a good amuse-bouche. Let's see what Cruise can do. And I'm liking this series so much more than most of Bond. There's no film as good as Skyfall or as good as Casino Royale. Or Goldeneye. I mean, yeah. I like Quantum of Solace better than any of these movies, but hey. Ooh. (laughs) Admittedly, Bond has more, but the average score is much higher for me with Mission Impossible. But we'll find out if I have a five-on-five streak of recommends next week. We actually don't have a theatrical release interrupting it. It just is a theatrical release on its own. Yes, and just to let you guys know, if you haven't acted already, doesn't matter if you're Ethan Hunt or not, the vault is going to shut and nobody is going to get Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, Westworld, Poltergeist, Goonies, all of those are getting locked up in just a matter of days. At the end of July, the vault is shut. We're going to begin another donation drive in just a couple weeks, and that will be exciting too, but if you want these shows, and I know a lot of people have requested these shows, your opportunity is closing. You need to act now. You can find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And before we sign off this episode, Stuart, I just want to congratulate you. This was your 450th movie review. Oh, wow. Cool. My 500th as well. This is a big episode here. Oh, how am I going to catch up with you? I got to find a... a Fifty podcast franchise that uh, you don't want to do. What about My Little Pony? Land Before Time. <laughs> oh, I think there are 50 Land Before Times. That will do it. Yeah, there we go. I'll catch up to you. The Mary-Kate Ashley Olsen direct-to-video movies. <laughs> there you go. There's got to be one that I can catch up to with you. But yeah, hey, I'll pat my own back. That's quite an accomplishment. That's 450 shows. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to believe I've only done 500. It feels like I've edited 2,000. (laughs) So, congrats. I look forward to welcoming you early next year. It's going to be like February into the 500 Club because we got like 35 or 40 more shows this year. (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) 
So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, mission accomplished. The president has invoked ghost protocol. We're shut down. No satellite safe house support or extraction. Thank you for listening to Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode in the Mission Impossible retrospective series. Seems we have a lot to talk about, don't we? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another Mission Impossible review culminating in a week of release review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Have you been away so long you've forgotten how good we are? Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Rambo, the Ocean's Eleven films, the Batman movies, and more. I am gagging for it. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Where else am I going to go? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post written movie reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Oh, that was nothing. That was fun. That was fun. I can understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. Relax, Luther. It's much worse than you think. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you in or not? Of course we're in. Now Playing is edited by Heath. Anthony, Stephen, and Arnie. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Is he serious? Always. <sighs> the movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. My lawyers are going to have a field day with this entrapment jurisdictional conflict. Maybe we'll just leave the courts out of this one. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. I don't have to tell you what a comfort anonymity can be in my profession. (laughs) It's like a warm blanket. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We were unprepared, in the dark, disavowed. And the only thing that functioned properly on that mission was this team. I don't know how we ended up together. I'm glad we did.
read that comic or do you know blue is the warmest color? Mm-mm. No. Must be a French comic or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a lesbian drama <laughs> art school. I don't know how you describe it. You're added to my pull list. Yeah, I, I think that you might enjoy it, Arnie. <laughs> and that's not a pun for anyone who doesn't know what a pull list is. I'm not making a <laughs> masturbation joke. <laughs> You know, Stuart, this reminds me of when we used to play Dungeons and Dragons. You would always add a twist so I could never hit my goal. (laughs) (laughs) To be discussed at another time, perhaps on Dungeons and Dragons, should we ever cover that movie. But anyway, the point is that... Today we're discussing Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Ooh, it's a scary one. I don't think it's that kind of ghost, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so scared, guys. It terrified me. I'm terrified that we're going back to Insidious. (laughs) The man who can't not smile is in this one. (laughs) (laughs) The man who loves teeth. who believes the best way to push forward human survival instinct is by (laughs) killing most of us with a nuclear warhead. (coughs) I wasn't laughing. I actually was choking, but... (laughs) That was the mission to get the launch codes. That was taken by the French girl assassin. Now, what they're going for, I guess, is... Oh, shit, I used to know. <laughs> See, yeah, this exactly. is exactly my point. <laughs> Hold on, they tell you. They definitely tell you. I never knew, and I've seen it twice. Yes, of course they tell you. It just doesn't matter to remember. You Don't hold on to it. Yeah, they don't tell you well enough for it to drive home. And Beverly Hills Cop 4 coming out soon. I smell a retrospective. Mm, Maybe it's coming soon. We'll see. (laughs) Is Eddie coming back? Yeah. He needs that like Tom needs (laughs) this. (laughs) Wow. I, wow. Eddie Murphy's going to make Beverly Hills Cop 4. Damn. (laughs) I'll believe it when I see it. Yes, and just to let you guys know, if you haven't acted already, doesn't matter if you're Ethan Hawk. Ethan Hawk, god damn it. (laughs) Doesn't matter. (laughs) Ethan Hawk, please donate. (laughs) 